because 2 Kings will be in chapter 8. If you're using the Pew Bible that's under the seat in front of you, it'll be page 314. 314. Before I read our text this morning, this is the penultimate sermon in this series. Just looking for opportunities to use that word. And Jamie will close us out next week, but I just want to say what a joy it's been to be in this series with you, and I hope the same has been true, that you have been encouraged and uh, strengthened in your uh, faith in the Lord and His goodness and promises to His people. Before I read our text this morning, for the most part in this series, and we've been looking at the theme of, um, I've got a lot of themes, but uh, one of the themes has been grace to persevere as this book, this book, The Kings, has been its, its original audience, it was written to uh, the exile um, generation that was conquered by Babylon and exiled by Babylon to be captives in Babylon. And this, is, this would have been the first audience who this was written to. And so we've been asking a lot of the times, like, who, how would they hear this and what would this mean for them? And we've, we've seen a lot of God's compassion as we've been um, going through this series and a lot of his, his, his mercy to them and his desire for them to repent and turn back to him, to covenantal faithfulness. Well, this morning we come to the topic of judgment, which is also a part of this series and letter of this book uh, of the Kings. And, and so we're going to look at that here in a minute in the context of God's providence but before I read it, I just wanted to remind you, one of the reasons we selected this text is because this is actually the fulfillment of a, of a text we looked at several weeks ago in 1 Kings chapter 19 with Elijah, right after his sort of home run moment with, uh, in chapter 18 on Mount Horeb where God uh, proves that he is the one true God and uh, over Baal and he lights the altar on fire uh, after he doused it with water. And there was this big rush of encouragement of what God was doing. And in chapter 18, he runs down uh, with the king uh, on their way to Jezreel. And then in 18, he finds out that uh, nothing, nothing's really changed. Um, Jezebel wants to kill him. She was the queen. And uh, this sends him into despair. And it sends him running. And he finds himself... Um, just in a tough spot. And we looked at that, and we looked at how God met with him. But at the end of that, God does something really unique. He kind of pulls the curtain back and he says, hey, I just, you know, I don't have to do this, but I'm gonna do this. That's my interpretation. Um, I care about my covenant promises. I care about judgment. I care about these things that you care about, Elijah. And actually, I want you to go anoint some people. And one of the people that he asked him to anoint was a man named Hazael. We hadn't, I don't think we'd met him yet at this point. And Hazael was not Jewish. He was Syrian. He was going to become king of Syria. And the purpose of this anointing was that God was going to use this king. When this happened, he was going to use this king and use Syria to, be, to come in and act as an act of judgment upon Israel and the northern kingdom because of their covenantal unfaithfulness, because of their idolatry, because of their worship of other idols. And we didn't actually note, note this, but Elijah doesn't do it, <laughs> which is interesting. And it's left to Elijah to do this. And that's where we come to our text this morning, where this moment happens. And I want to set, that, set the stage for you for that, because I want you to pay close attention to Elijah's response as I read this, because that's what we are going to be looking at this morning as we talk about providence, but more specifically, uh, God's judgment 
in the midst of his providence. Okay? So with that, let's give our attention to the reading of God's word found in the book of 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 7 to 15. Now Elisha came to Damascus. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And it was told him, the man of God has come here. The king said to Hazael, take a present with you and go to meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord through him, saying, shall I recover from the sickness? So Hazael went to meet him and took a present with him, all kinds of goods of Damascus, 40 camel loads. When he came, to, came and stood before him, he said, your son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, shall I recover from the sickness? Verse 10, and Elisha said to him, go and say to him, you shall certainly recover, but the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. And he fixed his gaze and he stared at him until he was embarrassed. And the man of God wept. And Hazael said, why does my Lord weep? And he answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses. And you will kill their young men with a sword and dash in pieces their little ones and rip open their pregnant women. And Hazael said, what is your servant? Who is but a dog that he should do this great thing? Elisha answered, the Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. Then he departed from Elisha and came to his master, who said to him, What did Elisha say to you? And he answered, He told me that you would certainly recover. But the next day he took the bed cloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face till he died. And Hazael became king in his place. We pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us, and we pray that you would be our teacher, our God, this morning. We pray that you would open our eyes and our ears, that we would see and hear things otherwise we could not, that you would change us, that you would soften our hardened hearts, that you would do it as good soil, as a seed goes into good soil and produces a fruit, that our hearts would be that soil and produce that fruit, that we would leave here changed people because of your truth, because of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, God's providence says, essentially, that all things happen by him, through him, and that nothing happens against his will. This is what we believe as Christians, we believe the Bible teaches. And for the most part, we can, I can say at least that as Christians, we are okay with this, uh, we're happy with this. We're, we're fine with this. When things are going good, right? when we get that job, um, maybe when we get married, maybe when we get accepted into that school that we wanted to get accepted into, or we make that grade that we work so hard to make. What we don't like is when God's providence includes the things that are difficult for us. Challenging for us, even as we sang, as I'll repeat several times, and I asked the Lord that cross our fair designs, the things that we wanted, things that we prayed for. Maybe that's not getting into the school of your choice. Maybe that's losing a job that you really loved. Maybe it's being married, but finding you're barren in the midst of that. 
real hardship that uh, now shines a different light on God's goodness and his providence. And, and, and in many ways asks us or brings up the question, is God really good? Well, our text this morning directs our attention to this very question, to God's providence over difficult things. Judgment in the case here of Israel, as we just read. And I hope that as we go through it and more, more specifically look at uh, Elijah's response here, that it would actually be grace for us to persevere in the same context. Not, not in the context of judgment, but in the context of difficult circumstances that we face. That all things come to us from the Lord, but that he is still good in the midst of that. How do we say that? How do we have grace to persevere in those moments? Let's look at that this morning. Um, and uh, a couple points that, that, that I will look at here in a second, but are mainly I want us to see what Elisha knows, and I want us to see what Elisha um, trusts. Um, but before I get to those things, I think it's important just to review exactly what's going on here in this text, because there's a lot of assumptions in this text, and there's also means there's, there's often a lot of assumptions in the Bible that the Bible carries with it that we don't often carry with it to the text, that we need to unpack a little bit here before we get to those points. And so just to summarize what's happening in this text, I did a little bit of that in the intro. Um, basically, uh, the king of Syria inquires with, uh, with, with, with Elisha, sending his servant uh, Hazael to go and find out if he's going to be well. All right, good idea. Go, go consult the prophet. Interesting, though, that it's not an Israeli, you know, Ben-Hadad is not Israeli. Uh, so he's consulting uh, an, a, a prophet of God, of Yahweh. And, and in this, um, you know, approach, as Hazael comes to him and brings his request to Elisha, Elisha says, he will get better, but he's, I'm actually seeing that he's going to die. And it's, there's a conflict here of what's going on, and I think what's safe to say is, is, is if he were to left, be left to himself, he would be fine. But actually, God is showing him something that, that he's actually going to die, and we see how that happens at the end of this text. But something else happens in the midst of that that, that is what I ask you to, to pay attention to, is that in this vision, right, in this death of Ben-Hadad, he sees that this will actually make Hazael king. And we can actually go ahead and say that Hazael probably has been thinking about this. This is a little bit, a little bit premeditative as we take the the, the bedcloth and suffocate the king at the end of this text. But in doing so, it's going to um, uh, fulfill this promise that God gave to Elijah, Elijah, which is going to mean that he is going to use Hazael and Syria to come in as an act of judgment upon his people. And when that happens, there will be suffering and there will be hardships beyond compare, such as verse 12 will read. This is what's happening in the text. Let me just re repeat that. God is actually using foreign armies to come in as judgment on his people. I think it's difficult for us today to completely understand judgment in the way that the Bible often talks about it, in the way that God also allows things like judgment and suffering within his providence. And it's hard for us to even read out loud verse 12 and think, how does God allow this? Why does he even allow this? Though we would agree, even as we've been paying attention in this service, man, Israel kind of deserves it. At the same time, maybe even as New Testament people, we might say, well, gosh, didn't God's judgment fall on Jesus? 
So why all this? So a few things about judgment and providence in the Bible before we move forward. One, it's important for us to remember that judgment in the Old Testament specifically, but also I would say judgment throughout the entire entire scriptures, is always about justice. God doesn't randomly judge or bring judgment upon people. It is justice for what has happened to others, but primarily what has happened to God himself. And one of these reasons is because God is holy. And this is a a topic for an entire another sermon. But this is a a massive topic which, which speaks to God's character, his holiness, which is often described as his onlyness. You might have heard that before. Which by definition is, is that sin of any kind is incompatible with God's character. So much so that nothing that is sinful or unclean can be in the presence of God at the same time for justice to be maintained. This is God's justice, which is a characteristic of holiness. All sin, what must be judged? All wrongs must be accounted for. And a wrong against any of God's people is first and foremost a wrong against himself. So judgment in Scripture is always first and foremost an act of justice, however God expresses it in Scripture. But there's, there's a couple different types of judgment. There's what I like to call little j judgment, and there's capital J judgment. And in light of Jesus as New Testament people, we can say that no one in the Old Testament actually receives capital J judgment for their sins which Jesus does. This is the power of the cross. This actually implies mercy on several levels in the Old Testament. Now, there is a final judgment coming in light of that. But here we see a difference between the capital J judgment that, that Jesus receives and the lowercase judgments that we see coming throughout Scripture in the Old Testament. And while those judgments point toward the final judgment, all of this serves often as discipline for God's people in the hopes that they will actually return to God through repentance and faith. And some of that's review for us this morning. In this way, judgment can be an instrument of God's mercy to his people, which is a bit of a paradox for us this morning. But there's always cost in judgment because sin costs. Sin is messy. Finally, the means of judgment. We get a little bit of that here this morning, but judgment or curses for breaking God's covenant with them, are laid out in Deuteronomy 28. Good reading for this afternoon. Deuteronomy 28. Go read about those curses and blessings. But in that, a covenant, which is a promise or a bond between two parties forged in blood, all that means that covenants agreed upon stipulations for keeping the promise that the covenant pointed to. And when those stipulations are kept, there is continued blessing. But when they are broken, there is judgment or curse. And that's what God lays out with Israel in Deuteronomy 28. Now, before the final act of judgment, which would be exile, there are always steps and stages. And we've seen that throughout this series. There's drought, there's famine, there's even attacks by wild animals that are layers of God's judgment before the final act of judgment, which is exile or removal from God's land. God does something where he brings in foreign nations to come in and conquer his people. And this is what Elijah sees in our text this morning. And I'm sure if you're like me, this doesn't make me feel comfortable (laughs) as I read this. 
But God will actually allow the enemies of his people, Syria, Assyria, Babylon later, right, to come in and conquer his own people as an act of judgment on them for their sin. And in this judgment, they will do unspeakable things to Israel, as noted in verse 12. But, and this, this creates another set of discussion, and this is what makes judgment and God's providence in the Bible difficult for us, is that not all of that judgment is just or something that God actually endorses. So let me throw that out there this morning. Not all that's going to happen in verse 12 is actually something that God endorses. Though it happens and he allows it. Actually, we learn in other places in Scripture that God doesn't always endorse the fullness of the judgment that occurs. In fact, in some places in Scripture, if you go and you read, for example, Jeremiah 50, where he actually announces judgment on the ones that were the instruments of judgment because they went too far in their judgment. Think about that for a second. And he'll do this with Nebuchadnezzar, who in one hand will, will, will call him um, a servant of the Lord, and in another hand will, will announce judgment on him because his acts of judgment went too far. None of us can pull those threads apart and understand how this works within God's providence. John Oley puts it this way, though, that God accomplishes his purposes through wicked individuals and violent acts does not remove moral responsibility. Human deeds are never regarded as divine coercion. At the same time, God never fails to accomplish his purpose, whatever may have been the human volition or intent. In short, there is nothing easy at times for us about God's providence as it pertains to acts of judgment in the Bible, whether it comes easy to us or not, but also as it pertains to anything under his providence that is of difficult and challenge to us, that brings suffering and hardship. And Elisha makes that clear with his tears as he sees what will happen once Hazael becomes king, the very thing that God has promised. And so what are we to make of Elisha's response? And better yet, how do we begin to have confidence in a God who allows such things? Maybe those are some of your questions this morning. So two assumptions that I think are running through this text that we have got to unearth before we can even move forward with that, that you can talk about over lunch, of course, is this. What does Elisha know that is assumed in the text? And what does Elisha trust that's assumed in the text? First, what does Elisha know? Elisha knows that there is one God and because there's one God, he gets to set the rules or terms for the relationship or how we are going to live. Let me say that again. Elisha believes there's one God, and because there's one God, he gets to set the terms for the relationship for how we are going to live. Now, you might have brought that assumption in with you this morning. You might carry that around with you. You might not have. That is something that Elisha believes that is not in this text. For Israel, those terms that we talk about for living, the, the assumption here, though that it is, it is stated but is not carried with it, were given to them in what the Bible refers to as the law. We're going to go back to Sunday school here for just a moment. And God did something uh, else here, though. He entered into agreement with them or a covenant that, as we said, is bonded them together saying that I will keep this agreement. And what is that agreement? Well, for starters, uh, part of that is, is I will be your God and you will be my people. And the law, one of the laws that stipulated the terms of the agreement was you will worship no other gods but me. 
And we could add to that, right? You should honor your father and mother. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery, right? This starts to sound familiar to us. Those are the terms of the agreement. So far in our Elijah and Elijah series, we have read that Israel, especially those ruling over Israel like kings and those in power, they have not been doing a great job of keeping the terms of this agreement. And with that unfaithfulness comes judgment or curse. And the assumption in the text is that while this is hard and difficult for us to get and to put our arms around, it is fair because this is the one true God and such is the case. He gets to set the terms for how we're going to live. Now, most of us agree still, I think, today that if you buy a home or you buy a car or anything that requires me to borrow money from a bank, right, you enter into a promise or a covenant of sorts, closest thing we might have to that apart from marriage, that says, I'll pay this amount back over time. And in that agreement, known as a contract, you, right, and the bank will agree upon terms or law that dictates the relationship of that agreement. For example, 30 years of monthly payments for X amount of dollars or four years of monthly payments for X amount of dollars, we call that the terms of the promise. Now we all agree that there are blessings and curses or judgments for keeping or breaking the promise. Uh, If you don't believe me, uh, miss a payment. But if you break those terms and promises and you miss that payment, right, there will be fines uh, that can possibly be jail time. If you refuse to pay those things, and the point of me bringing this up is we actually get that today as a culture. We don't have a problem with that. I mean, we have a problem with it, but we get it. But what are we saying? We're actually saying, and we are agreeing, that there is an ultimate authority in that relationship. That I can't just decide to not pay uh, and, and nothing will happen. Now, in fact, going in, you may feel like you have some type of autonomy by shopping around for the best loan and all this and that. But at the end of the day, interest rates are interest rates and loans are loans. And here's what this means for you, whether you like it or not. What's the point? We don't have a problem, or at least we understand when a bank or a loan agency takes you to court for not paying or being in agreement with the terms of the deal. We understand that. We get that, and for the most part, we actually accept that judgment if we break it. And why do we accept it? And this is going to sound silly this morning, but this is the assumption in the text that we've got to uncover. We accept this because this, we know the bank is real. Don't assume that. We know it's real. We know there's only one bank that has given us a loan. And because that's true, we often, without thinking, we give our authority over, we give it authority over us should we break the terms of the contract, of the covenant, and the promise. Actually, we are happy to do it because of what we get in return. And because we do that, we do not question nor are we confused by the judgment that comes down and the ter- if the terms are broken we, or if we stop paying. Biblical justice, biblical judgment is similar, right? Though it seems very different and removed from us culturally, but we enter into agreements with the same type of promise and the same type of judgments for breaking those promises every day. So the question for us is not, is judgment real? 
But who gets to execute that judgment? Who gets to have that ultimate authority? And for Elijah, if there is a God and only one God, then it must be him. It has to be him. And he is fine to submit himself under that authority and that reality. There is no other authority, and he knows it. This is what he knows. And this is actually an assumption in this text that he carries with him, whether we carry it or not. Now, here's the bigger one. This is the second point, what Elisha trusts. And what Elisha trusts is that there is one true God, and this God is good. And the reason why this is harder is is most of us might agree that there is one true God, that he is real, and because he's real, he gets to set the terms for the relationship, but that doesn't mean that we think he's good. But Elijah does, and I want to prove that to you. An assumption here that we can make today about ancient times and people, especially if we're unfamiliar with the Bible, is that, 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 that you know, as the enlightened ones, us, not them, right, then they, just, they just sort of go along with this stuff that God is real and, and that he's good. <clears throat> and, you know, we know so much more today so we don't, we don't fall into that trap. But the only thing that I would say about this, besides that it's completely wrong and it's completely arrogant, is have you ever read the Psalms? The Psalms are constantly crying out to God, asking, are you good? <laughs> are you who you say you are? Do you keep your promises? Can we trust you? On a number of ways, Israel could remember that God is, in fact, good and thus does know what is best for them, better than they could actually know for themselves, is to remember what God had done for them. And this would always point them back to the Exodus, the moment of salvation when God made good on his promise to free his people from Egypt. In fact, the Exodus is the most remembered event in the Old Testament. It is the event that the Bible points back to in order to remind Israel, in order to remind God's people that he is in fact good and that he is in fact faithful and you can trust him. But at the moment of rescue, something else happens, and we do talk about this quite a bit in the service. At the moment of rescue out of Egypt and to Mount Sinai, God didn't just free Israel to go about their lives and do whatever they wanted to do. He freed them from themselves from slavery to himself. He freed them from something to something, and that something is always himself, where what? Where true life is found. And he brought them to Sinai, and he gave them his law, not because God wants to suck all the fun out of the room, needs to be said, but so that they could know how to live and live life to the best and fullest way possible. If you see God's law in any other way, you're not seeing it for the way that it's to be presented. It is the best and it is the fullest way to live life. Why? Because he's good. This is the assumption. Let's get it up. He's good. He loves his people. Therefore, to have God's law is to have life for Elijah. And this means that God actually knows what's best for his people, better than they know what's best for them. And this is what he trusts. That God, in fact, knows what's best for his people. That God, in fact, knows what's best for him even better than he knows what's best for him. Even, 
even when it seems to cross his design or understanding of their own wants and of their own desires in life. And this is what's hard for us and what's hard for Israel in this text. The first thing they did, actually, once God rescued them to go back to the Exodus was what? They got to the other side of the Red Sea, and what did they do? They complained. They wanted to go back. Why did you bring us out here to to kill us? Let's let's go back and be slaves. At least we had food. I mean, you, you read that, and you think, man, there are some real problems there. But this is how hard it is to trust that God is good, even in the midst of what he's done for them. Knowing God is real is one thing, but trusting he is good and actually trusting he knows what's best for you, even better than what you think is best for you, that is another. Yet we are surrounded by examples of this every single day. When uh, the lifeguard at the pool this summer blows their whistle at you and says no running, but you ignore them because the best thing is for you to get to that pool faster than anybody else, but instead you slip and fall and you bust your head requiring a trip to the hospital and stitches later, who was right? Right? And that lifeguard probably didn't even know you. But on a more personal level, when I was seven or eight, uh, (laughs) the house we lived in um, had a crawl space. And at that time, I was fascinated with fire and I loved to go get sticks and bits of cardboard and and just go underneath the house and start a fire. I'm like, "What's, what's the problem with that? Nobody would bother me. Um, It was just kind of my own little sanctuary. Ryan time. One day, while underneath the house, starting a fire, the crawl space door opened up so fast. It was my dad. It opened up so fast. um, I I didn't have time to think about what what was about to happen. Um, There were no words exchanged, no what are you doing, no explaining for me. There was only teleporting. And my dad pulled me out of there and sent me to the room so fast that it felt like I teleported to my room. I actually even remember being grounded and thinking, what did I do? Now, I had no idea. Years later, especially after I became a homeowner and a parent myself, I thought about this. I still think about this probably more often than than you would imagine. And I just, I can't imagine what my dad was thinking. I kind of wonder, well, how did he even know? How did he know I was there? Um, which he probably followed me or something, but what was he thinking when he opened that door? But also how foolish of me at the same time, how caring for him. What the Bible says is if, if parents, right, if others can know what's best for us, this is what Elijah trusts about God. If a lifeguard can know what's best for you, better than what you might think is best for you, how much more than the God who created and sustains all things. In fact, this God has said to Israel, I not only know what's best for you, better than you know what's best for you, but I love you. You are what my treasured possession. And the New Testament announces that over his people as well. So it's not a question of do others know what's best for us, right? It's always a question of will we listen and will we trust, whether it's parents, teachers, but God alike, first and foremost. You can believe there is one true God, only, only one, but that doesn't mean that he is good to you. But on, the, on every page of Scripture, every page of Scripture, the reader is confronted with the reality that this God is good, even when his understanding of goodness crosses their own. And then it is by faith that they trust in God's providence and that his character truly remains the same. And Elisha, to come back to the text, this is what he trusts about God. 
even in the face of tragedy and judgment that come to his people. Which is why Elisha weeps, but he does so with what? Without despair. Which is a contrast to our friend Elijah from chapter 19. Elijah weeps, but he does not despair. Elijah weeps, but he does not throw his arms in the air saying, this is unfair. It's because Elijah knows and any who follow the Lord, right, what he believes, what he trusts, it's not just God is real, but that because he is real, because he's good, he knows what's best for them even better than they know what's best for themselves. It is an assumption in the text this morning, and my question for you as we leave this point is, is it yours? Is it yours? Do you believe that God knows what's best for you even better than you know yourself? Can you say that this morning? Widening the scope beyond judgment in our text this morning, can you say this in the midst of your own suffering, in the midst of your own hardship and loss as it pertains to God's providence and the ways that he crosses your fair designs? Going back to our Heidelberg question of faith, number 28, how does, God, how does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? We can be patient in adversity, it says, thankful in prosperity. And for the future, we can have good confidence, good confidence in our faithful God and Father. Do you have good, good, good confidence this morning? That's not a shaming question. Do you have good confidence in him, whether in times of feast or famine, friends, whether in times of blessing or judgment, as it pertains to this text? I was talking to a neighbor this week who teaches in the area, this, in the area of College Park, and just asking how the year was going, how things were winding down, and finishing up, and she said, you know, this year has been, been hard, and, and I think I kind of hear that a lot. Um, maybe it's a natural thing to say, but I don't think she was saying that just as sort of a natural thing to say. Um, she did go on to say that she wasn't really sure why it had been so hard, and we discussed some of those things, but she just, she said, she said this, that things just feel heavier, weightier, and there are a host of other reasons for this that we went on to discuss. Um, one of those for her was she had to deal with a kid who was Suicidal at their school. That kind of heavy. And the specifics are different for her world and mine, and perhaps maybe yours. Her words would be exactly how I would describe this year so far. And maybe you would too. Some really heavy, difficult things to walk through. Things that say, Ryan, do you have good confidence in your faithful God and Father? But challenge that. Can you say, God knows what's best for me, for us, for others, better than we know ourselves? That's been hard. Can you say this when you've been praying and praying for this one thing, but God chooses something different for you, different for that person? And I think this moves into more practical, cultural uh, discussions that we're having. Can you say that God knows what's best for you, right? That his law calls, when his law calls you to live in a way contrary to your own personal desires and behaviors. 
When God's ethic for life, right, what we do with our finances, what we do with our bodies, our sexual ethics, when God's ethic for life crosses your own, can you say he still knows what's best? You have confidence in your father that that is true. This is Elisha's assumption in the text as he weeps. Is it yours as well? Is it yours as well? Well, regardless of where you are this morning with that, regardless of those aren't your assumptions, there's only one way that any of us learn to do this as followers of Jesus. There's only one way for us to say, God knows what's best for me better than I know what's best for me, even in moments where it is, is in conflict with what I believe or in conflict with what I desire or in conflict with what I perceive to be going on around me. And that's by doing what Elisha did not have the privilege to do and where we'll land it for this morning, and that's to look at Jesus and that's to look at his cross. The cross of Jesus, paradoxically, is the place, what, of ultimate suffering and judgment, is it not? That results in your ultimate, what, good and blessing. Would any of us have looked that day, as Mary, I'm sure, did, and thought, wow, this is exactly what I think should happen. The cross is the place where ultimate suffering and judgment results in your ultimate good. It's the place where God says, I'll take the worst for them so that they might have what, what's best. And this is what changes our hearts towards God and leads us, what, into deeper trust in his will and his plans, and his providence, even when it seems so contrary to the things that we want and the things that we even believe about God. We look at his cross, and we let that be the light that shines on all of our circumstances, situations, and hardships. Everything must be seen in light of Jesus and his cross this morning, friends the place of ultimate suffering and of ultimate judgment that result in your ultimate good. Yes, take up God's law. You must. Follow his statutes, follow his promises, be obedient to his commands, but do so with the cross in view or you will be broken. Let the cross be the light by which you see not just God's goodness and love to you, but you see his best for you. Because when you have that, what do you have? You have confidence like no other in any station of life as well. We don't have time to unpack all this, but suffice it to say that when it comes to the providence of God, right, judgment in the Old Testament for Israel, right, or any hardship and suffering that we might face, we do so with confidence. Why? Because we know that God has not withheld any good thing from us. That's what the light of the cross does in our circumstances. Right, and I can go back to a familiar text for us in Genesis uh, 51, where at the end of Joseph's life, right, and you're probably already reciting this verse, right, the end of his life, which, which, which his life embodies hardship and challenge. His brothers sold him into slavery to get rid of him. And God used that for good. And this is the end of his life. His brothers think he's, he's going to kill him, that he's going to be angry. And this is what Joseph says to his brothers. It's so powerful. He says, do not fear for I am in the place, for am I, 
Am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now, God gave Joseph the privilege, the privilege of seeing it all the way through, of seeing God's goodness in the midst of tragedy. But God has given you something better. He's given you his son, Jesus. He's given you the cross, right? The greatest instrument meant for evil, but God, what meant it for good? The cross is where Joseph's words find their ultimate meaning, friends. Therefore, no no matter what this means for us this morning, no matter what is going on, no matter what you face, even death itself, you have confidence that nobody else has. You have a confidence that says, though I wouldn't have planned it this way myself, the one thing I have, uh, this cannot mean, is that God is not for me. And that God doesn't know all things and knows what's best for me better than I even know what's best for me. Therefore, I can be patient, in adversity, thankful in prosperity, as the, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, and, there, and, and for the future, what have good confidence in our faithful God and Father. This is the trust that Elisha has. And it's yours as we look at the cross and see all things by it. C.S. Lewis says, I believe in Christianity. This is in his mere Christianity. Quote for him, from him, that book. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Perhaps you've heard that. Is Jesus, right, is is the cross confidence for you this morning because it is the light through which you see everything else, both God's providence of blessing to you, but also his providence of hardship, suffering, and challenge. May Jesus be what tells us that God is real, May Jesus be what tells us that God is good and he always knows what's best for us, what's best for his people, better than they will ever know for themselves. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, as we wrestle with your providence, as we try to understand it, as you have disclosed it to us, we come to a place of faith. It is a faith claim to trust that you are good when there are things that cross our paths that are not good. But it's in those moments that we place the cross, your ultimate offering of your son, what is so indicative of suffering and pain and judgment for our betterment, and that you would do that for our blessing. That you wouldn't expend it upon ourselves, that you would take it your own that you would take on flesh, that you would live a perfect life, that you would endure injustice in a way that nobody else can endure injustice so that we would have blessing, so that we would be free, so that we would know what real life and joy in the presence of the Father is. Wherever we find ourselves this morning, would we be able to look at that and say, at the very least, I can trust that you are good. And then in the face of things that always perceive or look as though they should be blessing, Lord, I can trust your goodness to me in all ways. Meet with us now as we come to your table and as we take in these elements and taste and eat and drink your goodness to us.
In Jesus we pray, amen.